We've been asked to mark number 439 for a hymn of encouragement. And cannot we certainly each echo the sentiment of Psalm 118 verse 24 that this is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The marvelous beauty that surrounds us and the health that we each enjoy today that permit us to come together to honor, to magnify and exalt the name of God. Truly, what better commandment could you and I have chosen to follow than the one that sets our week off on a start like this one? It's our trust and hope that, as always, that we each should be edified and built up in the most holy faith as a result of being here today, and that, in fact, not only would God's name have been glorified, but you and I will have been better people, perhaps leaving the service, than we were when we arrived this morning. Over the past few Sundays, we've given attention to the glory of the church, inasmuch as we've looked at a number of the features and characteristics of it. In particular, our goal has been to notice that that beautiful body, the church, was established in undenominational purity. It was set forth in the words of Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And later, in so many descriptive ways, we found this body began at Jerusalem and it did so on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of our Savior. We also learn that her name is exceedingly important and vital. And as such, not only the name of the body, but those names, that name that we each wear individually, that beautiful name called Christian. Most recently, we looked at some of the aspects and features that related or pointed to the worship of this body. And today, might we give some more concerted study toward that end and toward that goal. And so as we look at the fifth installment, the Glory in the Church, Part 5. Today, what might we say is another distinguishing characteristic of the church? One of the things we noted as we began that series was if one takes a look at the smorgasbord of Christianity as it is so-called presented today, we find various bodies that teach different things. They worship in different ways. They, in fact, assert different practices. And all along, each one claims to follow the same pattern in the same book. And we discuss the nonsensical character of that kind of behavior. But might we also ask the same as it relates to the worship? Is the worship also a clear-cut identifying matter by which one can determine an organization to be or not to be the church of our Lord? Let's you and I study more about the character of the worship of the church this morning. As we do that, might we begin in the following way, giving thought to first some basic descriptives of the notion of worship, and then focusing more interestingly not only on the texts that were read a moment ago by Adam, but also a text, of course, enunciated by Jesus Himself. The word worship, as if we need any additional proof, it occurs so many times in the sacred text reminding us of the importance of worship both in the ancient era and in the modern era. God has always, of course, been a being entirely deserving of the worship of His creatures, His human creatures. And isn't it true that as we look at 198 occurrences in the King James translation, 193 in the American Standard, leads us all to understand that those words most often translated in this way have the following definitions. In the Old Testament, the word most frequently translated as worship is the word shakah. 
And as you'll notice, it simply means to prostrate before, or in addition, to do reverence to. That was a word then so descriptive. For instance, on that first occasion, the word occurs in the Old Testament in Genesis 22, verses 5 and following, when God told Abraham, you go and sacrifice your only son Isaac. As Abraham at one point made comment, he said, the lad and I will go yonder and worship. Abraham employed this word shakah, descriptive of falling prostrate before the greatness of the God of heaven and to understand just how dignified and worthy He really is. You'll notice in the New Testament, the word most often translated as worship is the word proskuneo. And it means as follows, to kiss the hand toward, literally, or to do reverence to. And as Paul and the other New Testament writers so beautifully employed that word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was the word that described kissing the hand toward God, exalting and magnifying Him as He is commanded in the attributes and in the reality of worship. Suffice it to say that worship of the church is a very important thing. Throughout the decades, some have noted Worship, at least in general, is not as respected as it once was. So often our lives are filled with other things. There are other matters deserving our attention, or so we think this afternoon. Other things take our attention in the morning, and worship just gets squeezed into a little time, for that's all we've got to give to God, it seems. But yet in the New Testament, we read about worship that occupied a far more vital role than just that. It was a significant, essential, necessary accompaniment to being a Christian. And furthermore, it was something about which God gave commandments. It couldn't be done just any way. God, you see, is the rightful one to be worshipped, and He has the deserving right to describe how He will be worshipped and the only ways He will accept it. Is it not in light of all of that that we might revisit Matthew 2 verse 2 for just a moment and notice the first occurrence of the word in the New Testament? We notice Genesis 22 was the first occurrence in the Old. On that very first time that the word occurs, we find some descriptives about the nature of what will be the meaning of that word all throughout the New Testament. And it basically describes the following. Worship denotes acts of reverence paid to the Creator. Doesn't that in fact present a mouthful? So often when today worship seems to be described in a number of different ways, with a number of different objectives, with a number of different vitalities and characteristics, that was the meaning as it was employed with regard to the worship of God. It is based upon that that you and I can draw some conclusions and make some appreciations for the remainder of our lesson today. But as we begin, might we make this resounding point. A person who has this interest to offer some kind of worship, that doesn't guarantee and mean that that worship is acceptable to God, does it? For we notice on so many occasions the following descriptives. First of all, worship can be vain. Did, did not Jesus assert that much? In Matthew 15, beginning in verse 7 and continuing through verse 9, He in fact quoted the prophet Isaiah and said, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. But then he continued in the next verse and said, In regards to their worship, they do worship me and do so in vain, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And we immediately learn that one's earnestness or one's mental note of honesty doesn't guarantee that that worship may be acceptable to God. For the Lord here described the possibility of vain worship, worship that's empty, worship that is void of power and majesty and might. Certainly the church of our Lord would not wish to worship in a vain way. But notice another descriptive in Acts 17. There as Paul came into the city of Athens on that second missionary journey, and on that occasion he saw so many particular statues and idolatrous matters taking place. Paul's heart was stirred within him, the text reminds us. And wasn't it true in verse 23? Him whom you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Here were individuals participating in all sorts and varieties and kinds of objective worship devoted to one and various other entities and beings. However, Paul knew the truth of the matter and said, you ignorantly worship. And that word means you do not know. They were not even apprised of the fact of who they were honestly striving to worship. It goes without saying again, doesn't it? The church of our Lord wouldn't wish to worship ignorantly. But notice yet a third opportunity in Colossians 2.23. On that occasion, Paul, in writing to the Colossian brethren, actually asserted to them about the fact of will worship, W-I-L-L. That is worship that is governed by, pursued according to, beneath the dictates of, and for the full service of, human will. Worshiping the way that I like, and the way that I prefer, and the way that I would wish to see it done. Paul said that's will worship. And God didn't condone it in Colossians 2.23. We immediately see then that just because a person has this feeling of emotional honesty... And this feeling of earnest desire to in some way worship doesn't mean that God will accept it. It must be characterized by more than that. A few other examples. In Exodus 32.8, the children of Israel. We well remember on that occasion that God told Moses, Go down from the mount. This people are worshiping. And God said, my wrath is going to, in fact, exceedingly become hot, and I will consume them and start a whole new nation with you, Moses. Question, was their worship acceptable? Obviously not. If God was so angry and so full of wrath toward the kind of worship in which they were then engaging, worship that we remember was lewd and licentious and invoking of a golden calf, Notice again one more time that the worship wasn't acceptable. In 1 Kings, we notice in chapter 12, other instances, one in chapter 11, one in chapter 12, all of which in a quick way point out worship is a closely guarded truth revealed in the Word of God. Men have never been allowed just to do it any way they like, any means by which they prefer. And so we come today to ask, could this also be a beautiful and rather restrictive identifying mark that helps us appreciate the church of our Lord? Mark remarks about worship, at least for that slide, might conclude with this one. 
This notion of worship, it does then involve acts of reverence directed to God. And that little four-letter word, acts, A-C-T-S, does help us see that worship, again, involves these carefully prescribed things or matters that God has set forth. That was, in fact, the way that the word was utilized in various passages in both Old and New Testament. But with regard to those, where may we go from that point and see how that touches us even to this day? Perhaps we might well then begin in the following text. Those verses that were read in our hearing earlier, taken from Ephesians 3.21 as well as Psalm 29.2, urge that you and I come before the Lord in the beauty of holiness and to worship Him in the way that He has prescribed. Maybe none better than the Lord Himself would help us understand the fullness of all that that involves. I would invite you over the next few moments to revisit with me a conversation that the Lord had with the Samaritan woman in the fourth chapter of John. Though the conversation is a bit lengthy, really a subset of it will suffice us well. Beginning in verse 19 of John chapter 4, when on that occasion the Lord spoke with that Samaritan woman, let's pick up the conversation with her speaking first. She said, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She had already sensed in the Master, by the fact of what He had just revealed to her, the facts that He was simply no mere man in terms of being aloof from the nature of the God of heaven. She perceived that He, in fact, was a prophet. She speaks again next and asks Him a very compelling question. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but ye say that in Jerusalem is where men ought to worship. Immediately, having perceived he was a prophet, she directed the attention toward a matter that had no doubt been something of which she had heard spoken all her life. Our fathers, Gentile fathers, had worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But then she said, But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She had a good question. In fact, she had an exceedingly good question. It involved the nature of worship, the place it was to be done, in some ways the prescriptions by which it was to occur. Jesus now replies, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. Now that probably caught her off guard. He began by saying, Woman, believe me, Here was one who was speaking with authority. The Lord knew that of which He spoke. The matter of future character of worship was not concealed to Him. He was the Son of God. The hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall men worship the Father. The Lord wasn't finished. The next verse He went on to say, You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And then verses 23 and 24. At this point, we can now see the Lord driving home the point of that to which He was referring. And He says in those verses, again beginning in verse 23 of John the fourth chapter, the Lord again asserts, Believe me, the hour is coming and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in truth and in spirit, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
Looking then again at verses 19 to 24, are we not able to make some comments moving along this direction in line? Jesus directly said, Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The Lord stood on the precipice, and so did that woman, of a dramatic and full change in the character of worship. It's not going to be done the same way as it has been in days past. In terms of placement, in terms of location, things are going to change. I've tried to write that in the following way. The worship described before was going to have a different character than the worship of which the Lord now referred. I would submit that the kind of worship to which the Lord refers is a worship descriptive of those who are in His body. And those who are, of course, part of that church of today, what was this new worship? Might it not be described in some ways like this? This contrast now to which Jesus refers, this new kind of worship versus that worship that had taken place in former days, the first thing to be noted is it's in spirit. He mentioned it twice, verse 23 and again in verse 24. What does it mean then to worship in spirit? As I studied this, there were some things that occurred to me, quite frankly, that had never occurred to me before, despite the fact I'd no doubt read this dozens if not hundreds of times. Let me share at least some of the things that seemed to be the case, at least to me. When Jesus said that one must worship in spirit, one of the first things that that might bring to our mind is the realization that truly one must be mentally engaged in the worship. It is not something that is merely a ritual for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, nor is it something that one does just out of habit. And to be sure, that certainly is included, but apparently that's not all that's included. For even in the Old Testament, God didn't accept ritualistic habitual worship. Isaiah chapter 1 still says that the people of that day had turned it into a ritual and God wasn't pleased with it then. So we see that merely that must not be all that the Lord was referring to. I wonder what else might be included. First of all, maybe the hinge is the opening statement of verse 24. God is a spirit. So if it is to say that God is a spirit and our worship must be in spirit, perhaps that is a critical link or a gear that will move us in the right direction. Some of these thoughts might be pertinent. Under the Old Testament regime, we remember that worship was characterized by a number of matters that hinged upon the flesh, such as the following. Worship was done at a specific place. First, it was the tabernacle. Later, it was the temple, but it was a designated place. But today, there is no specifically designated geographical place. We can worship here just as surely as in Cookfield or in Gainesboro or, yea, even in India. But not only that. Notice what else was of significance in the Old Testament. We well remember that there was a special clothing for the priest... He had to adorn himself in particular kinds of clothing with a particular hat, garbed in a particular way with certain things to be done, and then and only then could he approach by the command of God the things that God had commanded today. We certainly wish to devote and give unto God that which is our best, but he hasn't prescribed a certain article of clothing to be worn. 
Notice again, the emphasis is not so much on the outward clothing as it is on a responsiveness from a spiritually oriented heart. What's more, we notice there was a particular furniture inside that tabernacle and later in the temple, and that furniture was a critical element toward the rightful worship of God. The table of showbread, the, the particular golden candlestick, as well as the altar of incense, it all had its placement and it all was rightfully approached. But you and I know today there's not a particular candlestick in here. There's not a particular table upon which one has to appreciate things. We notice there is a table here before us, but those don't have to sit on a table. It is to be noted, thou the emphasis is not on that which is fleshly. It's on that which is a spiritual response. What's more... We notice there were sacrifices that they had to bring and those had to be offered in the right way. Our sacrifice today has, of course, once been offered. We don't have to come to the building and bring our ox. We don't have to bring our turtle dove. We don't have to make sure we tag along and bring a sheep. Christ Jesus was our sacrifice once for all, and thanks be unto God for that. Isn't it to be noted then in light of all of these things, though they had their place in Old Testament worship, they do not have their place in New Testament worship. Perhaps it was to that thought that the Lord referred when He said that when you worshiped in this mountain and when the Jews worship in Jerusalem, neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem will men worship the Father because you know it is God's Spirit. And isn't this the idea behind 1 Peter 2, verses 5 to 9? It is on that occasion that we appreciate perhaps the next thought and the next point. Wasn't it Peter who said all of us are priests? And the purpose and the objective that sets before us is that we may offer sacrifices acceptable unto God. Now that doesn't contradict the fact the Lord offered the one sacrifice for our sins. That means in our service to God, whether it be in worship or otherwise, we are in a position to be able to bring proper and acceptable spiritual service to Him. And that should describe our worship. Not hinged upon that which is fleshly, but hinged upon that which is spiritual. If that be the point then of that particular passage, notice how it helps us shed light upon some of these other passages such as Revelation 5.8 as well as Revelation 8.4. Our prayers are said, in fact, to redound and to, in fact, come before the golden throne of God as sweet-smelling incense. That does remind us of that offering of incense in the Old Testament, and yet, in a parallel fashion, our prayers occupy that role today. Perhaps notice also the thought of our singing when we sing, as we have done this morning, these songs of adoration and exaltation of the name of God, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, what kind of songs? Spiritual ones. Those which don't exalt and magnify the matters of the flesh, but those which turn our mind toward the matter of spiritual worship of God, adoring what He has done, the thought of His body, Perhaps that word spiritual does occupy such a key role in this passage as well as the First Peter one. Maybe that does bring us then to draw some brief conclusions. Is it not then a tragedy in our day when 
men have taken the liberty on so many occasions to degrade worship to the point that exalts in one way or another the flesh. Be it having a drum or two sitting over in the corner, an orchestra with several guitars and otherwise behind because that's what they want. But might we notice again, that's directed toward the flesh, isn't it? Or in other changes in worship whereby one makes various other requirements, not only perhaps with respect to the music, but with respect, with respect to other attributes of the worship. Changes with respect to the Lord's Supper. Changes with respect to the placement that the preaching has. After all, we do live in a world where quite often, at least in education, we're told that people's attention span is now only a little less than 20 minutes. So you don't ever preach more than about 10 to 12 minutes. Might I submit Paul preached till midnight because he had truth to share. And though perhaps it'd be out of place for me or another preacher to do that today, starting from noon at least, we should realize that when the truth is to be shared, certainly we can carve out of our schedule enough time to give God a few minutes for an exposition of a part of His Word. For it is that Word, of course, that will be opened in judgment, John 12, 48. And by that Word, you and I will be judged. When we give thought to the unchanging worship, to the point where some of these features we've discussed seem to be missing. We've greatly erred. But to say that worship must be done in spirit brings us to what else the Lord said. The worship must also be in truth. And again, the Lord said that twice. To be in truth, and certainly one of the things that means is this. It helps us appreciate that that worship must certainly be in harmony with the revealed will of God. We need a thus saith the Lord then for those matters to be included in it. It's not our liberty to put in it what we want, for we aren't the ones being worshipped. God is. And thus we need His authorization for those matters no more and no less than what we then should use to worship Him. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, Nadab and Abihu attempted to insert something. And of course, their fate is a well-known one inasmuch as they lost their lives on that occasion. We realize today that God may not immediately take the life of one who worships improperly, but might we ask this. God's prescriptions concerning worship are no less strict and no less required today than they were then. And yet, if we today thus mangle and abuse them, what might occur at judgment? Might we be found unworthy? And might we be found thus not in a position to hear Him say, Enter into the joys of thy Lord? I'd submit that not only might that occur, it would be guaranteed to occur. Given that state of affairs, what else thus might be said concerning this issue of truth? First of all, this contrast that I've highlighted this way seems to again be asserting by the Savior a deeper truth about the nature of worshiping God in harmony with His commandments. Perhaps it goes like this. It was also true in the Old Testament, wasn't it? That God required His people to worship in the way He had commanded. Even then, they weren't at liberty just to change worship and introduce what they wanted. We well remember what happened when Rehoboam introduced a different kind of worship in 1 Kings 12. 
God was sorely displeased. Thus, it would seem that this passage before us to worship in truth might mean and might convey a little bit more than just worshiping in harmony with God's will. Perhaps this is an idea also included. That Old Testament worship, all that it had encompassed, had been but a shadow, had been but a type of that ultimate and true worship that was one day to come. And here Jesus and that Samaritan woman stood on the precipice of that new kind of worship that was to be truthful and in spirit and that was in fact to be the absolute pinnacle of what worship ever would have hoped to be. And today you and I are blessed with the reality of worshiping that way. We mentioned a moment ago the sacrifices and all those pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And yet, according to the Hebrew writer, every one of them was a type of something that became a reality in the New Testament. Every one of them. The table of showbread, the altar of incense, the character of the tabernacle as a whole, Hebrews 9 verses 1 to 6 tell us, was but a shadow. It was a lacking failure in fullness to what one day was going to be. Today, you and I live when the reality is now here. Worship today can thus be in truth and in spirit, and this is the absolute zenith of what worship ever could have been. For you and I have the thoroughfare of the truth of God to direct it in the way that it must be offered. To tamper with it, to change it in any way, is an absolute affront and is a blasphemy to the deliverance of God. Perhaps in finality, might we thus notice this statement in which I've tried to summarize some of the thoughts of our lesson this morning. New Testament worship must surely be done in harmony with God's commandments, but it also must be in spiritual thrust with appreciation of the real significance that worship now can enjoy. And with that said, is it not then fair to perhaps conclude with these basic statements? That worship that we've described in general terms so far... We'll strive to be a little bit specific today, but then even more so next Lord's Day morning. First of all, some general characteristics that may be very useful in helping identify the church of our Lord because that church will worship in the following ways. The worship will be done in such a way that it edifies one another per the commandment of 1 Corinthians 14 verses 12 and 26. That verse we noted earlier, speaking to yourselves, you notice even in our songs, we speak words and we edify the others who hear. When we come together to worship, we don't run, run roughshod over each other by doing what I want and what you want. We worship in a way that edifies those who are present because we lay the emphasis upon that which is the will and commandment of God. But secondly, the worship, of course, admonishes and exhorts the spiritual part of man. As we noted earlier, we don't orchestrate our worship to play, if you'll please, to the flesh of man. That's not the goal of worship. Never was in this age and never will be. Worship is for that spiritual benefit of the human family. Inasmuch as that takes place, appreciate with me some of these terms. The original words as it occurs with this matter of decently and in order, which is a very critical part of New Testament worship, isn't it? 
In 1 Corinthians 14, 34, let all things be done decently and in order. We thus understand that that word decently means the following, properly, becomingly, decently. That phrase in order means an arranging or in an order. That then means worship must never be chaotic. It must not be confusing. It must be in an orderly way, moving from one aspect of the worship to another. Might we in fact present it like this? In that era, there were opportunities for the exposition of spiritual gifts, those who would speak in tongues and those who would interpret those tongues. Even in that age, Paul said it must be done decently in an order. What would you suppose about this age now where those gifts are no longer extant in men? Surely it's even more true if it was true then. Today it is a real tragedy when there are some groups who worship in such a chaotic, anarchic, confused, perplexing way that those who are present sometimes aren't even aware of what's being done and how it's being done and who's doing it, it ought not so to be. If worship is to be done decently and in order, it is to be done in a way that mutually edifies those that are present. And as the lesson closes, might I ask you to notice one term. There are times today that you and I hear an emphasis on spontaneity in worship. That is, impromptu character. Stand up and say what's on your mind. Give a testimony or a witness. In light of this charge that it always be in order, there is no room for spontaneity like that in worship. In light of all of that, may we conclude by saying today that inasmuch as our worship is in spirit and in truth, it highlights us to notice that that worship indeed glorifies God by directing the proper magnificent character to Him, and it admonishes those who are present in the ways that we have described this morning. How thankful we can be for worship in truth and in spirit as described by our Savior. This morning as we analyze our life and examine ourselves whether we be in the faith, where do you and I stand before the presence of God? Are we in a position to worship Him in spirit and in truth? If you're not a Christian, if you're one who's reached an age of knowing wrong from right but never come to God through Christ, how can you think you can worship Him in spirit and in truth? For to this point in your life, you've rejected the truth that He sent. Jesus said, I am the truth, didn't He, in John 14, 6. If today you need to become a Christian, don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Don't think there will ever be a better day. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, but you no longer are faithful... You've long ago strayed maybe in terms of worship and it has degenerated to be just something you do a couple of times a week just to make a check mark off some list. If that's true, you aren't worshiping in spirit. Why not make things right today? If your sins have been public, come to God. Come to the Christ and let Him forgive you of them. If we could be of assistance to you, why not let us know in what way we can help, even now while together we stand and while we sing.